Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. Today's news is often dominated by social media-fueled cycles of transgression, condemnation, and apology. I'm thinking of basketball player Kyrie Irving's anti-Semitic tweets, of late-night talk show host James Corden's ban from a New York City restaurant for being rude to waitstaff, <laughs> and who can forget Will Smith's live television smack of Chris Rock at last year's Oscars. In each of these cases, apologies were offered. In some, there were consequences, almost a penance, for the perpetrator. But was there forgiveness, real, deeply felt, honestly rendered, and freely offered forgiveness? That's debatable. Our guest this week says forgiveness is one of the most powerful and essential gifts human beings have to give. Timothy Keller, pastor and founder of the New York City's Redeemer Presbyterian Church, is the author of two dozen books, including his latest, Forgive, Why Should I and How Can I? The book approaches forgiveness from a Christian perspective. In it, he writes, Without forgiveness, no human relationships or communities can be sustained. Without forgiveness... Centuries-long cycles of retaliation, violence, and genocide repeat themselves. We should forgive because it is profoundly practical. To fail to forgive is to undermine the health and coherence of one's body, one's relationships, and the entire human community. Later in this program, we'll hear from someone who experienced the damage of a coerced and insincere apology. But first my conversation with Timothy Keller about the power of true forgiveness. Welcome to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. It's a pleasure to have you. I'm so glad to be here. When you introduce yourself, what what do you focus on today? Well, I'm a Presbyterian minister, but um, uh, right now, of course, I'm in my 70s, so I'm retired. But I'd say the thing I've done over the years is been to take what I would consider fairly traditional uh, Christian faith and bring it into big cities where there's a lot of skepticism about it, uh, into urban milieus, um, places where sec- more secular places and places where there's a lot of skepticism about traditional religion. And I'd say that's probably my main MO. That's what I do. I did start a church here in New York City. Oh, my, in 1989, and I was the pastor for 28 years. It's called Redeemer Presbyterian Church. I traveled around the world to help other churches get started in other large cities. So that's basically who I am. I really appreciate you giving that background. And let me ask, because you are battling cancer, how are you feeling? How are you doing? I've been doing very well. I feel very blessed. I also feel very lucky, depending how you interpret that depending on your theology uh, i have pancreatic cancer and ordinarily once it's diagnosed as stage four which it was in may of 2020 usually you don't live as long as i have but the various treatments have uh, been pretty effective but they're not the cancer still there and i've been pretty functional during almost the entire time i've not been deeply really really ill uh, the treatments themselves very often make you sick chemotherapy makes you sick other sorts of things 
I've actually been quite functional for two and a half years. So I'm extremely grateful. And I hear that in your voice. Many people who struggle with an illness like cancer can find it really challenging to, mm -hmm. to sit in a place of gratitude, which is what you're describing. Well, it, I'm grateful for two things. One is I'm grateful that uh, it looks like I'm getting more time than probably the average person with pancreatic cancer. And I've got grandchildren. and I like to see as much of them as I can. I like to see them grow as high as I can. But the other thing is my wife and I, when it comes to spirituality, closeness to God, we actually would not ever want to go back to the way we were before the cancer. Cancer uh, basically gets rid of the illusion that you are immortal. There's a, a mechanism in all of us that basically uh, represses the idea that you're going to die, even though technically you know it. At a certain level, you re really don't believe it. And uh, when that's gone, it you have to get your spiritual resources. You've got to get to God. You've got to find a way to get through the day. And it drove us to prayer and to God, even though because I'm a minister. I've been talking about this all my life. But it drove us to God. And we found uh, God in a way that we had never known before. And we actually say, if I have another 15 years because they say, oh, the cancer has gone. We never want to go back to the way in which we were before the cancer. I think it's masochistic to say I'm grateful for the cancer, but I am definitely grateful for many of the things I've discovered through the cancer. I'm struck by two things that you just said. The illusion of immortality yeah. mm -hmm. is shattered. Yeah. And that's striking to me because you spent, I imagine, the better part of your professional and spiritual life encouraging people to recognize that this yeah. time on earth is limited. Yes. And doing funerals and, and, and actually watching people die and spending time with them as they died and, and spending time with people who just lost loved ones. It's interesting. I believe that these are actually complementary perspectives, even though they're probably going to sound contradictory at first. I think from the standpoint of evolutionary biology, it's probably one of the ways in which we had learned to survive. The evolutionists would say the traits that help you survive, those are the traits that come down now to the human race now. And I do think actually in some ways, not, not a total denial where you actually think that you can, you know, jump off of, you know, tall buildings. That's obviously wrong, but, but a kind of mild denial is probably good in a way for getting through life. On the other hand, the negative is that I think most human beings don't want to believe they're as dependent on God as they are that we like to think of ourselves as self-sufficient and we don't really need God. We don't need spiritual help. We know I'm, I'm okay. You know, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And it's a way of creating a little more self-sufficiency than is warranted. And in some ways it keeps people away from God. I don't think those two things could both be true. Your book comes out at an interesting time. Mm -hmm. You know, relationships uh, in our country are, strained and fractured by all kinds of tumult that is unfolding, whether we are talking about polarization, whether we're talking about political identity. I, I can't even tell you the number of people I know who are dreading gathering because they know that they're going to be encountering family relatives who hold really radically different worldviews that are often rooted in a religious tradition. Yeah. 
And there's uh, concern about what happens during the dinner conversation when it turns to the politics and direction of the world. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I just see relationships breaking down all over the place and uh, people having trouble keeping relationships going because of these differences. My guess is that during the pandemic, some of these differences were accentuated because we all spent about 10 times more online than we were before because we were just all cooped up. And when you go online, you tend to go to the places. Well, in fact, we all know the algorithms tend to take you to the places that just confirm your biases. And I saw even in a six or seven month period, uh, small differences in churches getting accentuated because the people weren't together. They weren't talking with each other. They were online. And when they came back, I saw churches split over masks. Usually the people who were kind of the anti-mask people were kind of on the conservative side before. And the people who were the mask people were kind of more on the liberal side. But when they were away from each other for six months in their social media bubbles, they came back and they literally, they split. I, I, I know a couple churches that actually split right down the middle because differences that were mild had got accentuated. And they really did not know how to, frankly, compromise. They didn't know how to reach out and both say, hey, you know what? We need to stay together and we need to understand one another and we need to make some concessions. And how do we how do we live together? And that's just not happening in our culture. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. And your book tackles a question that many of us have heard lessons about from the time we were little. Forgiveness from the earliest days when we have conflict, oftentimes we are messaged, okay, to move forward, we need to forgive. You know, whether it is the person sitting next to you who pulled your hair or who took your scissors or your crayons, there is a transactional action. You apologize, you, the other person accepts it, and then we move forward. You tackle forgiveness in a couple of ways. You have this faith-based perspective, but you also tackle what I will call more secular approaches to deconstructing what types of forgiveness exist kind of in our culture today. Talk to me about transactional forgiveness and therapeutic forgiveness. Right. Yeah. The therapeutic forgiveness tends to think only of the good that forgiveness does to you internally in your well-being and you're, you're trying to get past your anger. You're trying to get to a place of well-being and you're really not concerned at all about any kind of restoration of the relationship, or even you're not really that concerned about whether you could set the wrongdoer, you know, right. You, all you care about is my insides. And I try to say that that is partly right because there's no doubt about it. Frankly, if you can't forgive, if you stay bitter, I mean, it's going to just ask your doctor, you know, there's ulcers, there's heart problems. It's not good in a, at a number of levels, but on the other hand, that's just insufficient you should be caring about the human community and about other people and not only about yourself. Forgiveness is not only about you. The transactional is almost punitive. Martha Nussbaum, who's a philosopher at University of Chicago, she sees a lot of people, including Christians, take almost a punitive approach to forgiveness where they say, I'll forgive you, but you've got to come and repent. And what that usually means is grovel, you know, beating yourself up, which I do see people do on Twitter. You know, as a way of trying to mollify all the people that are angry. He said, I shouldn't have done it, and I was wrong, and it was terrible, and there's no excuse and all that. And um, I think Martha Nussbaum is right in saying it. That's really not forgiveness. That's punishment. You know, it really doesn't deserve the word. 
And I think both of those, and I'm going to speak in a more secular way, the common good of the human community rather than just what makes you feel better. Because the transactional approach is still a, really a form of vengeance that makes you feel better. That, uh, you know, this person hurt me and I'm, I'm seeing this person hurt too. So I would say there's a kind of forgiveness that's all about me uh, and uh, it doesn't really work. I can't help but think about our political context. I can't help but think about the way celebrities are called to task or political leaders are called to task and the way social media plays a role in being that public platform where we demand repentance. Yeah, it's not a great place for it at all. The trouble is that notorious sins, in other words, a sin that's pretty public, there does need to be some kind of um, public confession, I think. If you've done something public, everybody knows about it, then you need to respond. And the apology or repentance or confession or whatever you want to call it, I think it ought to be there. But I w- you know what I would always do is I would much rather say to a person, write it out and release it to the news media or something like that, but don't go on Twitter. Because, uh, first of all, it's not long enough, frankly. I really do think social media is a pretty bad place for both calling for apologies and making them. I read two different themes. One about the individual power of forgiveness for oneself. I mean, you touched on it when you talk about the body holds the the anger, the body holds the stress, the pain that one may need to release. And almost as if forgiveness itself needs to be offered, whether or not you feel it, because it is the beginning process of releasing it from your body. Right. As a counselor, I do think ministers do spend a lot of time talking to people about guilt, shame, forgiveness, bitterness. That's And that's right. And over the years, this is what I've told people. I would say forgiveness is actually granted before it's felt. If you wait to feel it, if you wait for the anger to go away, you'll never grant it. It'll just stay there. But the way to grant it is to say, first of all, I reject vengeance. I reject trying to revenge myself on this person. It doesn't mean I won't necessarily seek justice, but I'm not going to try to have revenge and make that person suffer. And then I also promise not to keep bringing this up to myself over and over and over again. And to grant forgiveness is to say, I'm not going to take revenge and I'm not going to keep thinking about this over and over and over again. And that's actually going to be very hard over the next few weeks or months. If you make that commitment, it's going to be tough. But guess what? If you keep with it, you'll find your anger starting to at least diminish. If you grant forgiveness, you will feel it. If you wait to feel it before you grant it, you probably will wait forever. To grant forgiveness is to say, I reject revenge. I am not going to try to make this person suffer as much as I suffered. doesn't mean I can't pursue justice and do the right thing here, but I'm not going to try to make that person suffer. And secondly, I'm not going to keep bringing this up over and over to myself. And if you make that commitment and then you stick with that, it's going to be hard for the next few weeks, but you'll find your anger diminishing. I want to connect that to two ideas. I hear often the invocation of a higher being that is embodied by love, a higher being embodied by mercy, a higher being embodied by wrath. And when it comes to forgiveness, and particularly around holding positions, public policies that people feel 
challenge them, cancel them, deny them, erase them. Seeing the humanity of the person sitting across the table can be really hard. Yes, but you've really got to struggle to do it. And to me, the best way of doing that is to remember that you yourself also need forgiveness sometimes. And here's what we tend to do. If you find yourself caught in a lie, somebody catches you lying, you say, well, I shouldn't have done that. But you see, I was in this situation, that situation. But when you catch somebody else in a lie, what do you say? You say, you're just a liar. (laughs) If you lie, it's complicated. If they lie, it's simple. They're just liars. And what you have to do is you have to remember, I really need to treat other people the way I would want to be treated. And that I also very often uh, mess up and I've needed to be forgiven. And of course, if you believe in God, then you can have the added resource of saying, I'm living only by the mercy of God. So how can I be unmerciful to other people? My guest is New York Times bestselling author Timothy Keller, talking about his new book, Forgive, Why Should I and How Can I? When we return, Keller addresses the role of forgiveness in the Me Too movement and in churches where congregants have been abused. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. I'm Breen Khan, and this is Inspired by Interfaith Voices. This week, my conversation with retired Presbyterian pastor and co-founder of the Gospel Coalition, Timothy Keller. He is also a New York Times bestselling author. This week, we're talking about his latest book, Forgive, Why Should I and How Can I? In the pages and stories, Keller explores the spiritual value of forgiveness that can be hard to bestow in a polarized culture. Let's get back to the conversation. When I was going through the book, one thing that is unmistakable 
is that we're bringing into our personal lives the culture of outrage that exists within the atmosphere that we're all living. A lot of times the questions that I hear emerging that are rhetorical sound like this. How can I forgive someone or accept someone who denies the humanity of X or denies my humanity? Well, I think that that doesn't make them themselves non-human. So what you want to do is you just want to say, I don't want to treat them the way they're treating me. I think that's the right thing to do. There's a quote in the book by Miroslav Volf. He's a Yale theologian. Uh, I don't know if I got this exactly right by memory. He basically says, forgiveness flounders when I fail to include the perpetrator in the community of humans and when I fail to include myself in the community of sinners. So when I start to treat somebody else as less than human or when I treat myself as something more than a flawed human, then I can't forgive. So if a person says they deny my humanity, okay, well, I don't want to deny theirs. And that's the reason I should forgive. And why do you think we're in the place that we are today? I really do think some of it is a a fading of religious belief. I believe that there's a Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, Christianity are very different. There's no doubt about it because their concepts of God are somewhat different. And yet they all have resources for forgiveness and for mercy. You know, Allah is merciful. Uh, Buddhism talks about compassion a lot. Um, I I believe they all have that, but I do think one of the reasons why it's fading and we're going back to a kind of shame and honor culture um, is that religion is fading. But I think the other thing is probably social media. That social media creates the, the, the quick response when you're face-to-face with someone, you're always more civil and human. And when you're able to do it anonymously, the easier it is to objectify the person. So I think those are a couple of reasons. Disaffiliation or not affiliating doesn't necessarily mean people don't have some foundation of spirituality. It's that they've chosen to disaffiliate from organized religious entities. Yes. On the other hand, regular worship, regular services. What that does is it takes what you believe and it really uh, embodies it in your life. So if you're Episcopalian, you kneel in order to confess your sins every week. And that what that does is it really makes it real to you. It instills it in you. It embodies it in you. And I do think that when you say, you know, I just don't like the institution. I don't want to be part of it, but I still have the belief. I doubt that the belief is permeating your life as much as if you were involved in the institution. So I still think That's another reason why forgiveness is fading. When conversations turn to things like outrage culture, how do you respond? Oh, I think it's wrong to not talk about those things at all. If somebody brings up a subject, it's rude to say, I don't want to talk about it. That's just very rude. But on the other hand, I think at a certain point, you have to say, you know, I really do not want the news cycle to be running my emotional life. And so, hey, let's talk about, you know, what do you you think the Yankees can come back next year? So, uh, of course, I'm sorry, that's a New York. (laughs) I was about to say, anyway, I like that redirection of moving us away from something that is sure to amplify our differences as opposed to finding something that can be a little bit more communal, a little bit more unifying. It's very much a 
subject of conversation. For example, the Me Too movement. Do, do I forgive the person who did this? You know, or do we ever let the person who admitted he did these things back into public life? It's an entailment of a lot of the questions about Black Lives Matter. Should black people forgive white people? Should they be forgiving the white shooter? And what's the reaction been to that so far? I've gotten nothing but really good responses. Because in the book, I take very seriously the way forgiveness has been misused. I mean, in in churches, that's my area here. Women who have been abused have been told that they have to forgive the perpetrator. You know, he repented. So you have to forgive. And that means you don't bring it up and you don't talk about it anymore. So forgiveness has been used abusively. And I recognize that. I've seen churches do it. And so what I've got to do is not just to come in and say, hey, you unforgiving, horrible culture out there, you need to learn forgiveness again. I do realize all the reasons why people struggle with forgiveness. But in the end, Desmond Tutu is right. There's no future without forgiveness. Do you offer counsel to those who've been abused, who've been harmed, who've been suffering about how they can navigate themselves to a place of forgiveness without losing themselves in the process? Yeah, I do in the sense that there are places where I say, I believe that what I'm telling you about forgiveness applies to everyone. But it makes a big difference as to how horrendous the wrong was that a person who uh, has been just horrendously wronged or abused needs to take plenty of time. You don't want the evil done to you to basically uh, victimize you the rest of your life. And if you don't learn forgiveness, I think it could. That's not something you press on people right away. I don't think the process is qualitatively different for a really horribly abused person, but I think quantitatively it is very much. It takes a lot more work. Uh, People around them are trying to help abuse victims have to be way, way more patient. We have to let the the person in many ways decide how fast they can move on these things. When you looked back at these ideas like forgiveness played out, what were some of the takeaways for you? Well, two things. One is I don't think that that's going to last. I mean, it's true that when a abuse victim sees an abuser really taken down, maybe not even their abuser, just anybody, any abuser, just taken down in a major way, they feel finally seen. I don't know though, that that is really going to heal them. Because in a sense, yes, there's a certain amount of satisfaction that comes from seeing somebody really hurt, who hurt other people. But that's still not forgiveness. And the way you help an abused person into forgiveness is, as I said, just walking with them very carefully and slowly. I read a book some years ago called The View from the Hearse about a man who lost two different sons. And He said, sometimes at the funerals, people would sit down and say, I know the Lord is working in this, and you're really going to have to trust God, and I don't know why this happened, but all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And we're just praying for you. And the author said, I just couldn't wait for the person to leave. And then he said, another person would come and sit down and basically just sit there with me. And when I said something, they said something. When I said something, they said something. And then they prayed for me, and I... I hated to see them go. Mm. And I, I think that absolutely applies to abuse victims. I think 
the people filled with advice are really going to hurt the person. But if you are really present with them for a long period of time and they sense that you're not just trying to fit them into your agenda, I think they'll start to listen to you, especially when you say, you know, in the long run, ultimately, the only way to make sure that the evil done to you does not actually hinder you the rest of your life is you you do have to forgive. That story you just described of sitting with someone in grief mm-hmm. and not offering advice and being a companion in that grief. It's incredibly pastoral. It's a role that I know many chaplains of different faith traditions uh, and no faith tradition are often taught to kind of think about and integrate into their practice, especially in environments in which people are suffering. Do you feel like we're missing a level of education on skills like forgiveness in our culture? Yes, I do think the pastoral burnout has always been a problem. And I think part of it is that I'm glad you responded positively when I described someone who was really not filled with advice, but was really just walking with a grief, a victim of grief or a victim of abuse. And you're just walking, not giving a lot of advice. But you know what's hard about that? What's hard about that is you you do feel like, but I'm not helping them. Uh, and very often pastors spend a lot of time with a lot of people. And because you're trying to take your time and be patient and listen, sometimes you get done with a day or a week and you feel like I'm not really helping anybody. The fact that we can't fix people uh, can really lead to a lot of frustration and burnout. But I do think pastoral burnout's worse now because all leaders of all institutions are getting more criticism than they ever have, ever and more pushback from people. And it's not just ministers, but leaders of any organization, any institution, any foundation, any college, any university, they just can't wait to get out because of the incredible pressures on them. Leadership at this point is almost impossible in this country. And uh, anybody out there in leadership knows what I'm talking about. I learned in in the tradition that I'm in, and it was an experience I had never had before. And I'm curious if you've ever experienced this. Friends were getting ready to go on a pilgrimage to Hajj, and they reached out and said, I'm preparing, and I just want to apologize and ask your forgiveness if I have done anything to hurt you. Mm. And I was so struck by that. I didn't know that that was a prerequisite ritual of preparing emotionally and spiritually to go on a pilgrimage. But it really struck me that was almost part of like an ablution, a cleansing, a preparation. And I'm wondering in your tradition, if you see forgiveness as being one of those essential preparatory rituals for getting closer to the divine. Yes, definitely. I'm a Presbyterian and Presbyterians have traditionally put a big emphasis on getting things straight before you take the Lord's Supper. And and now this may sound extreme to you, but in the Highlands of Scotland, uh, before the Lord's Supper, which is the Eucharist communion, elders would come and visit the uh, people in their homes and say, are you right with God or are you right with your your brothers and sisters? Or is there there anything between you and your, your neighbor or your brothers and sisters? Is there anything between you and God? And if 
uh, the person said, yes, I've asked God to forgive my sins and I have forgiven or made things right with my neighbor, you would actually get a token like the old subway tokens. You can still find them in museums, uh, a little like a coin. And so in church the next Sunday, if you went forward to get the Lord's Supper, you had to give the pastor the token. That's not what most American Presbyterians do, but it's in our blood that we put a lot of emphasis on uh, don't commune with the Lord's Supper unless you got your relationships right. There is power in forgiving. There's power in accepting someone's apology. Yeah, that's true. I do think that very often what somebody's done to you that hurts you is an abuse of power. And I think that when you forgive, you are in some ways giving up power. The reason why the Amish, which is, I talk about this in the book, uh, the Amish were able to forgive the shooter that killed so many of those little uh, Amish children at the schoolhouse in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. And they were able to come around the shooter's family and his parents and, and forgive them. What the Amish did was they, over and over and over again, every Sunday they talk about what Jesus did, which was instead of making us pay for our sins against him, he died for us and he bore the cost of our sins. Uh, now, I'm not going to get into atonement theology or any of that stuff, but the point is that, in, in, that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh and basically what the cross means is instead of wreaking vengeance on us uh, we uh, and, and exercising his power like that, he became weak and he went to the cross and he died on the cross and paid for our sins. And what whether uh, plenty of non-believers, non-Christians, I mean, uh, say that doesn't make any sense. But if you believe it, and the Amish do, then it means that every single week they are saying that forgiveness is giving up the power to do revenge. And yet look at what Jesus, how he's changed the world, how he's changed our lives. And so basically forgiveness is a way of saying, I'm not going to fight power with power. You used your power against me, but I'm actually going to give up my power and I'm going to forgive you. And I think that's real power. That's not weakness. That's true power. Don't fight power with power. But in a sense, give up your power to serve other people. And in the end, that's real strength. Hmm. It was a pleasure to have you on. And I hope we'll have an opportunity to have you back. Thank you so much for joining and for your time. And thank you. Timothy Keller is a retired pastor and founder of the New York City Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Redeemer City to City, which trains pastors for service around the world. And he's a co-founder of the Gospel Coalition. Keller received his Master's in Divinity from the Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and his Doctorate in Ministry from Westminster Theological Seminary. He has written numerous books, including the New York Times bestselling book, The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. When we come back, we'll hear from a young woman who says she was coerced into forgiving her assaulter and the detrimental effect that had on her life. Stay with us. <laughs> 